Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you, we have a great show today. Uh, the gentleman um, is my guest, is a great musician. You know him from Bauhaus, you know him from Love and Rockets, who will be playing the Cruel World Festival soon, and then they go on tour, and my guest is Daniel Ash. How you doing, Dan? Hello. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. So you're out in California. How, how, how's the weather out there today? It's great. Uh, it's not a cloud in the sky, and there's no chemtrails for a change, <laughs> which is uh, great. I don't know what the deal is with those things. They seem to be getting worse and worse all the time. It's like sometimes, sometimes here, the, 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 the sky is just full of them. Uh, same in L.A., same all over. It's, I, I never got to the bottom on what they're all about, but it doesn't seem right at all. I don't get it. Um, do you know anything about chemtrails? I don't, but I know when I was in L.A., I was in Burbank. I used to see them all the time. I don't see them as much. I'm, I'm outside Philadelphia now. I don't see them as much, but I used to see them a lot, and, and it was something that they came out of nowhere. It wasn't like when we were younger I saw them. I don't remember seeing them at all now. I don't know when it started, probably 15 years ago, but the official explanation apparently is that... Um, they're trying to combat global warming. But um, when we had a bunch of rain here a few weeks back, we had got a lot of rain this winter. I got some barrels out the back that collect water, and on the surface there's all this um, yellowy-green um, chemical layer on on the top. So that's obviously from the chemtrails. But, I mean, it, I, I just... Uh, it really concerns me, to be honest. I, I think... Um, I just, nobody sort of comes up with... Um, there's a lot of people in town here, you know, alternative thinkers, let's say, and they 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 really think that um, it's a, it's not a good thing at all. A lot of people talk about it being something about you know population control and stuff like that. But um, and and the other thing I notice is it always happens at night. You don't see this stuff in the daytime, which again is suspect. You know, why would they do it at night? It's, it's 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 things are changing things are changing but what also is changing is you have a show coming up uh May oh, good okay i'm glad you wanted to change the subject yeah, yeah good you idea know, yeah good idea we can get deep we can get deep i'll find yeah. up but i want to hear about first of all you're playing in philadelphia in june which is great but cruel world okay that's a big festival they had it i believe last year and if i was in la i'd be going but i'm not anymore how did it come about how did you guys decide to play that this year well, we didn't, yeah, we didn't decide to play it as such. We just got a call. I think Kevin Drummond got a call out of the blue because he knows all these different people in the different festivals. And, and you know, in a nutshell, it was offered to us. So, you know, we had an offer we couldn't refuse, really. Um, it's weird as well. It's like Deja Vu because we played it this time last year, you know, with Bauhaus. So uh, this year is only the one day, though. It's only the, uh, it isn't two days this year. It's only the one. But yeah, that's that's essentially what happened. Kevin got a call, and then he put it to us. And uh, as I say, it was a deal we we couldn't refuse, really. And um, boom, just came out of the blue. So you got that. So then, then how do you decide from but that one deal out of the blue that you couldn't refuse? How does it sit there? Do you turn decide to start a tour? Because you have a nice little tour going after that. Well, this always happens with us, or with all the with the bands. Um, it always happens. We get offered one great gig at a festival and then suddenly all these other offers come in and um the thing is uh personally i'm very surprised by the interest in love and rockets you know to begin with it's, you know as i said this came out of the blue and um 
you know, when we put the feelers out there, uh, they, um, well, we got offered, actually. We just got offered X amount of gigs more. The, the interest was there. And as soon as we put the first five shows out on the West Coast, they, they're selling really well, the tickets, and it, it just sort of um, multiplied from there, really. So a lot of people were asking if you were playing the East Coast, Midwest. So we've basically just added these shows on. And, and and that's it. And it's a it's a great coincidence because the record company Beggars Banquet months ago, before any of this happened, um, by coincidence, are, have been putting out and are putting out all of our back catalogue on vinyl, etc. So it's all sort of coming together nicely, you know, um, combining the um, reissues of everything as we're on tour. So it's sort of perfect timing, a bit of synchronicity there. Now, so there you go. That's how it happens. Now, I love the, the artwork on your albums. Who, how, Where did the artwork come on the Love and, Love and Rockets albums? Where did it come from? Was it your idea? Was it an artist? Yeah, it, 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 come, it comes from us all because the three of us all went to art school at the same time. And we all did graphics at art school for three or four years. And there it is. You know, it's um, you know, it's obviously something that we, we're... Um, enthusiastic about and it's something that we can actually do because of our history you know at, coming from our school etc so yeah that's where it comes from now what got you into music i always wonder was there a defining moment or was it just something that you heard music when you're younger i mean did you come from a musical family or what what put you in this direction which you've had a very successful career oh okay then <laughs> um well, music hits most people at about between 12 and 15 years old, and that's when... I, well, I do remember, I think, when I was about six years old, I, I saw this um, plastic red and white plastic guitar when I was 10 years old in a store, and it had a picture of the Beatles on the front of it with their autographs, and I was fascinated by that instrument. So that was at, like, 10. I remember my dad got me this little thing. It was probably about two foot long. So that was at 10 years old. Then at 15 years old, I was still sort of fascinated with, with this thing, you know, ele not acoustic guitar, but electric guitars always looked looked fascinating to me. They just like, and the sound of them, you know, just like any teenage boy would, you know, get off on the sound of an electric guitar. So at 15, I think my dad took me down to London and there's this place called Shaftesbury Avenue where all the guitar shops were at that time. And he bought me a... You know, I remember all this stuff. It's, uh, he bought me a, it was a Telecaster copy, you know, it was 25 quid, 25 English pounds. And he, he bought me this thing. And, you know, when I got it home, I, I didn't even play it as such. I just like looking at it. And I remember putting these three stars on it, a red star, a white star and a blue star or something. And I just used to, um, I used to fall asleep with this thing, you know, when I was a kid. Just and then I'd wake up and I'd just see this guitar and you know being being very lazy I didn't actually start playing it for a couple of years after that um, and then it sort of just progressed from there but you know again after school I went to art school and you know a lot of the kids there a lot of the guys were were, were playing guitar at art school and I remember going around different people's houses and you know plugging in and playing with other people and it. it, it you know, luckily it worked out because I'm not really good at anything else. You know, I don't, I couldn't imagine, um, you know, I could never, never really um, get the idea of, um, you know, doing a nine to five. It never really, it didn't compute with me at all, you know, and luckily um, I 
knew Kevin and David from art school and I knew Peter from uh, from school. We go back to like nine, 11 years old. And um, I always thought Pete should be in a band anyway because of the way he looked right from when we were kids, you know, and we were both Bowie freaks. And so, you know, five years after school, I called him up and, uh, you know, basically that's when Bauhaus started. So that's how it happened. You know, it was from a from 10 years old seeing an electric and a little plastic guitar in a shop front and um it just went on from there you know is uh, i suppose it you know there's a lot of luck involved there because um i wasn't one of those guys that sat down and learned scales i was way too scatterbrained for that but um i sort of treated the instrument of you know just a piece of wood with six strings and was always trying to get original sounds out of it rather than you know a lot of the guys at college were trying to sound and doing Jimi Hendrix riffs and everything, and was way too lazy to learn to play that well in a conventional <laughs> sense. And also, I had no interest in sounding like somebody else. So I went off on a on a different path and just simplified the whole thing. So instead of doing complicated chords or you know scales, you know, doing lead bits, I would go the opposite direction and just concentrate on one note you know, and get a good sound out of like the E string or whatever and use effects to make that sound unlike a guitar, if you like. So then I discovered a thing called the Ebo, which basically turns the guitar into a keyboard because you can sustain the notes forever. And um, that that was it for me. That really, that was something that um, I could call my own, that sound, whereas I could sustain single notes um, indefinitely. So that completely opened it up for me. And also I didn't have to learn all these horrible scales and stuff like that. You know, I could just go off on a different direction. Now, what, what made you think, what made you think you t that you were looking, what, what made you look for that different sound? Was it something inside you that said, you know, I don't want to be well, different or was well, what it was, it was, um, the band had already started Bauhaus and Kevin, uh, the whole band, I think we went into this music store because Kevin was looking for one of those um, electronic drums. The first time it was used was on uh, Ring My Bell. You remember that sound on yeah. Ring My Bell? That was this new gizmo that had come out. And I know New Order got a hold of one as well. Anyway, we went into this store to uh, put in all our monies together to buy this, this electronic drum. And, on, and on, anyway, we got the drum. And then on the top shelf, there was this little chrome gizmo, this little thing on the top shelf. So I asked the guy in the store, like, what is that on the top shelf? And he explained what it was. And he took it off the shelf and he plugged the guitar in and then showed me how it um, sustains the note um, on, the, on the strings of the guitar. And as soon as I heard that and saw it, I went, i got to have it, i got to have it. And it was £100, which was like a lot of money back then when we were all completely broke. But anyway, I got the money together and I, I just grabbed it. And it looks so good as well. It's this little silver thing that you just hold in your right hand and put it over the strings. And uh, it's funny because I asked the guy, I said, why hasn't anybody bought this yet? This is an amazing thing. And he said the funniest answer. He said, nobody wanted to pay £100 for something so small. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what sort of logic is that? As it was a small chrome thing, they nobody bought it. Um, honestly, that's what he said. Nobody wanted it because it was a hundred quid, and it was too small. 
It is funny, yeah, but now, so you get that, you get your sound. Now, how do you guys start, how do you get your first record deal? How does Bauhaus get that first record deal? Well, after, after we were together for four weeks, it was exactly four weeks, we came up with Bella Lugosi's Dead, which took a day to write and record. It was an, one of those instant things. So we went straight into the local, well, the record, the, the, uh, the recording studio was 10 miles down the road in a place called Wellingborough, which actually is where Peter comes from. And, um, we went straight in there, you know, got a few uh, a few quid together, went in there and recorded Bella with about four other tracks. And um, then, of course, we had an acetate of it. Um, we, you know, we got it converted to an acetate. And then I, I went down, all, I, I just booked, I phoned up all the four major record companies at that time, which was Decca, RCA, um, RCA, Decca, I don't know, two others, two, there were four big majors back then. And I just phoned them up and, and arranged to have interviews with these guys, you know, um, with this acetate. So, you know, got the, got the interviews all on the same day and, uh, got on the train, went down to London and just, you know, um, chopped, chopped that song, you know, via the acetate. And, you know, as I'd go into the, the, the rooms and, you know, we'd sit down in these great big flash offices, that, you know, and, and then I'd put the record on. And of course, the, the vocal doesn't come in till about three minutes or whatever. So I was sitting there thinking, just please wait till the vocal comes in. You know, this is a great track. This is a great track. And they all said the same. They all said, well, we like, we, um, this is the sort of stuff I listen to at home, but uh, unfortunately it's not commercially viable. So, you know, we're going to pass on it. So that happened and didn't happen, you know, in as much as we didn't get a deal. And then somebody, somebody in the band, I don't know who it was, had another one. of I think we had a couple of acetates made. Anyway, they handed it to somebody um, in a club somewhere in London. They got it. They got it to um, a guy, um, a record company, tiny little record company in the east end of London called Small Wonder Records. And a guy called Pete, I think it was Pete Stennett, and he um, he ran his little um, he ran his record company through his um, record shop. He would sell, you know, records, CDs, not CDs back then. It was uh, vinyl and uh, cassettes. So he had a little record store basically in the East End of London. So we got we got his contact. I can't remember. This is going way back. But anyway, the four of us jumped on the, uh, we, we jumped in my old banger car, I think, and we went down to, uh, to, to his record shop, went into, went in there and, um, he put it on the, um, he put it on the turntable there and we were just the four of us with him, we we're listening to it. And then uh, by the end of the track, he said, okay, you guys have got a deal. This is great. And it, we just, it, it really hit us. It was like, wow, this is amazing. We got a record deal right there and then signed off. And we, the deal we had was uh, it's a 50-50 split. He said, listen, I've got no money to promote this. It's just going to be word of mouth. I'll print up a thousand copies, I think he said. Put it in the store and we'll see what happens. And, and luckily, it really took off in, a, in an independent way. It really took off. So because of that, that was great for us because we were totally broke and um, we would get 50% of the royalties. So we would get a straight cut down the line. And um, we had a joke back then. We used to call it the Bella Checks because uh, we'd all be broke and then suddenly a Bella Check would come in. 
which would keep us up and running. So, you know, that's way back in like 1978, 79. So, so yeah, that was a small window records. And then obviously after that, we got some gigs around London. I think we tried, we, we straight away, instead of staying local, we, we got a gig or two at the marquee and, um, then we got approached from uh, Beggar's Banquet and we signed, uh, initially we signed to 4AD with Ivo, Ivo Watts. And then, um, we were transferred over to Beggar's Banquet quite shortly afterwards, which is, we, we really wanted that actually, because they were the more commercial label. So we were thrilled to be on Beggar's instead of 4AD, you know, because we wanted as much exposure as possible in a, you know, in a commercial sense, no, rather no. than, you know, just being in the underground as such. Now, now back then, what was what was your the group's writing process like? Did you guys all write together? Did you come up with ideas? Like, you know, I've heard stories about Bala Lagosa. You know, has different different stories about yeah, some of Robert. Well, Bella was yeah, that was the first the first with Bella. Interesting story. Um, we'd had a few rehearsals together, and then um, I was speaking to Dave. One of us phoned each other. Speaking to Dave on the phone, and I said, "Look, I've got this really haunting riff." Yeah, I'm using these um, strange chords. They're not really chords that I know. I don't know what they're called, but they're, I'm using this open tuning on this uh, thing. I've got this real haunting riff. He said, well, that's really weird because I've got this lyric about Bella Lugosi, you know, the uh, the actor that played Dracula. I said, and so we were like, right, let's get this to the next rehearsal and just see see if we can work this up into a, into a song. So we, we to the next rehearsal, David handed over the lyric sheet to Peter. I started playing the riff. Kevin started playing that drum beat that you know. David started playing the bass line, and boom, we actually played Bella right there. It was it just it was instant. So as soon as we you know we we it was just it came together that quick. So then we went into the studio immediately and got it down. So that's that's one of the working processes. I mean. Um, you know, sometimes a, a piece would have a lyric. Um, later on, down the line, I'd also start writing lyrics. Uh, so the three of us would have lyrics as such, and then we would um, we would be in a rehearsal room, and we we just start, you know, I'd play a riff or whatever, and we'd work on that. The lyric was there, and it would evolve like that, like most bands. Now, like all bands, like all bands, I would think. Now, now, when does the band start? getting that momentum where you can start doing bigger tours and stuff like that. When do you start feeling like, okay, you know, you're not no, going to... You know, we, no, the band doesn't have any say when they feel like doing a tour. No, it's what's offered. It's always, you know, like, for example, when we got signed to Beggars, then they put an album out, they put a single out, whatever, that would get out there and then we'd get offered the gigs, places like the Marquee, because we actually had a record out. And then if those gigs are successful, word of mouth back then, then we'd be then we we go to the next level and get offered larger gigs. I think when we very first started, for example, we um, we were supporting a band called Magazine. Do you remember Howard Devoto Magazine? Yeah. Anyway, um, I remember we had to pay or beggars had to pay three thousand quid in order to get three thousand pounds in order to get on that tour supporting uh, Magazine. So that's how it happened for us. And then after, and, and those gigs, by the way, they they were fantastic. We, to be honest, we we blew magazine off stage, and, and in fact, they they, uh, they they split up after that tour. <laughs> it was a fantastic tour for us, 
and that really i think that really launched us you know once we you know a lot of the audience were there for us in, in fact I, after we played a lot of them left so it was a hell of a tour for us yeah that that got us on the map so that that's our story really on how how we sort of um you know progress from doing little pub you know we we play the local pubs you know we play i remember once we played a teachers training college and um the pretenders had just had their first hit and they were headlining and you know we were playing in the corner unofficially we just set up in the corner and started playing without anybody's permission you know over the other <laughs> side of the room at this teachers training college you know because we were cheeky monkeys back then we just we just sort of you know set up and played without without um, being told we could do so now now when did you guys first come to the states that would have been uh, the very first time would have been 1980 and we just came over um and did like four or five gigs in little underground clubs in new york it was just the east coast just new york very weird we just flew over we're in this uh what was the name of that the uruquai i think was the name of the hotel where all the bands i think iggy pop even lived there for many years um actually yeah so you know, everybody went to that one hotel. So, yeah, we um, yeah we just did like four or five gigs in these grungy little places. And I, I remember I didn't get any of my gear that I wanted, which was a complete nightmare because I didn't even have like a fuzz box, which is essential, you know. So I had to just crank the amp up super loud in order to get half of the sort of sound of distortion that I wanted. But yeah, so it was it was really intense, real quick. It was like I think we were over there for about six, seven days. We did four or five gigs, and then back on a plane to England. Boom, yeah. And then after that, I don't know how long it was after that. Then we came over, and I remember I always I don't remember many gigs, but I always remember we played the two nights at the Roxy in L.A. And I think the first album would have been out by then, and the audience reaction was incredible. Because we we were used to the Blues Brothers situation, you know the scene where they throw they have to have the, the sheet in front of, of mesh wire in front of them. And <laughs> oh yeah, I know. And we we had a lot of that in England. So when we came over to the states and we played those two gigs at the Roxy, I, I always remember that being phenomenal because they actually shut up and listened when we were playing the songs, and then when the song had finished, you hear this roar. We hadn't heard anything like it. It was so, and such a positive attitude out there in the audience, particularly in Los Angeles, you know. So there you go. As, as you're getting bigger, how is your life changing for you? You know, because you guys are musicians, you know, you have, that, you have a great life. What was it like for you as you guys were getting bigger? Was it something that you... Well, were... it gets to the stage where when you very first start, you do the gig and then you can mix in with the audience and go to the bar afterwards. And it's a very social thing. And then suddenly the day arrives where you have your own guitar tech and your own guitar drum tech and your own bass tech and your own, you know, vocals. A person looking after each person in the band. And it's like, it's fantastic because... Um, you no longer have to pack up your gear after the gig and all that nonsense and get back in a, in a an old banger of a van that breaks down all the time. All those cliches. And it's always the case where with any band, the heater never works, you know. <laughs> so you're traveling around Europe in 1981, 1980. Um, in January, 
going to like east and west Germany and you know wherever else in Europe where it's out, you know, freezing cold and the heater never works it's the weirdest thing I mean how hard is it to fix the heater but we you know the heater would never work but anyway as I say you get to that stage where suddenly you're signed you've got a float in as, as much you have an amount of money to actually you know book into hotels and stuff like that and um, then again as time goes on you can actually have your own room in a hotel instead of two sharing or sometimes all four of us in a room when you start out you know and there's it's so different when you very first start you know you, we would pack all the gear up and then we put an old mattress on top of all the gear and <laughs> we'll be bouncing around on the mattress going to the next gig 500 miles down the road in the snow so you know then it goes from that to if the record you know the album is successful to a degree then you have a little bit more of a budget and then you you know everything gets upgraded as the years go on but with us um we got a we got a record deal very quickly but the prog the progress after that was slow it wasn't overnight so each album would steadily sell more than the last one so it wasn't a sudden jump from nothing to everything so because of that we kept relatively sane, I think. Now, you guys were on top of the pops. What was that like? Because, you know, I, I grew up in, in the Philadelphia area. We had our shows, an American bandstand and stuff like that, and Midnight Special. But for a lot of English musicians I've talked to, it, it, it was such a show that everybody watched. What was it like for you? What was your experience on there? Oh, it was fantastic to get on that show. It was very odd because you had to mime. So that, that was really, you know... As a band, we had a lot of integrity, so the idea of miming was really a cringer for us. It really was. And I know it was for other bands similar to us, you know, like The Cure or Susie and the Banshees. The idea of miming was really not good. Um, as I remember, you know, I remember myself, I had quite a few drinks in order to deal with that, you know, because <laughs> it was so embarrassing, the idea of miming, you know, it just didn't connect at all with us. As it, did. I don't think it did with other bands in the same category as us. But you know, the idea of getting on top of the pops was amazing because that was the one show. There were two shows in England. There were, there was top of the pops and there was the Old Grey Whistle Test. So the Old Grey Whistle Test was a different thing completely. That's where you actually did play live, you know. But the top of the pops was the big commercial state, uh, commercial TV slot, and. Um, Oh yeah, we couldn't. We we were thrilled when we got that, got that gig, and I think um, the first time we went on there it was with Ziggy Stardust. So yeah, fantastic. We absolutely loved it. Now the fact that we, you know, the fact that we we got on that show because everybody watched that show. Now, do your record sales go up after you play that show? Is it like next day people go, "Oh my god, well, this is great"? I, yeah, you know what? It's a real funny story because every single band ever after they played. After they played um, Top of the Pops, the record would automatically sell more the next day. And with us, it was the opposite. And it has never happened before. I don't understand why. It wasn't uh, with Ziggy, though. It was um, it was the second or third time we were on with, with a track called La Catija Nick. It's really weird to pronounce that one. I don't know if I've still got the pronunciation right now, to be honest. But... Um, uh, yeah, that one, when we played, 
the record actually went down in sales the next day. I have no comprehension on why that happened, but apparently <laughs> it's never happened before or since in the history of Top of the Pops. So I don't know what we did wrong there, but uh, yeah, it's a funny story. Now, but yeah, but, but you know, with the other tracks, yeah, it goes up. It always goes up when you play Top of the Pops. People go out and buy the record the next day, and that was how it worked back then. But with us, the sales went down the next day. I have no idea why that happened. Now, it's a hilarious story, though. It, it, that's, that's crazy, because you're right. It must have just been timing. It's so yeah, weird. Like, what's the, what the, you know, what's, well, I nearly swore back then. That's all right. You can and swear. It, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. But yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> and you, you know, the record sales went down after you'd just been on national TV. You know, it's like, what? Now, after the band breaks up, Where's your head? What do you plan to do? What what is you, what is your long term goal? I mean, what what did well, you I, after when Bauhaus when Bauhaus broke up? I'd already started a, a band called Tones on Tail with Kevin on drums and um, uh, Glenn Campling on bass. Actually, Glenn, uh, Kevin didn't come in till a bit later. At first, it was just uh, uh, Glenn Campling and myself. We were friends from art school, and also Glenn was um, he was roadieing for Bauhaus as well at that time. Uh, so yeah, I'd already got that going, and I'd already had a single or two out, and so I just continued doing that. It's weird because I, I was actually on holiday in Spain on my bike, you know, um, with a tent. I was just, I went around Europe with a tent uh, on the bike, and I, um, you know, I heard about it. Then I didn't even know the band had actually broken up. It's a very spinal tap moment, in actual fact. I'm like, oh, this is news to me. Got back to England, and um, yeah, we'd split up. But as I said, I'd had the turn, I had the turns on tail thing going, so I just continued and made that my main thing. Now, how does Love of Brockers come come about? Because that's who you're touring with, and I want to hear because that your video, then you know, the video I'm alive was. I'm an MTV guy. Everyone knew that video. Everyone loved your hair. It was like you were the coolest hair. But uh, how did love? <laughs> everyone loved it. Everyone was like, "Look at that hair!" Like me, I had, I had, you know, I couldn't get my hair up like that. I would, but if I went to a hairdresser and said, "Do my hair," they go, "Get the hell out of here! We can't do that. You're here in Philadelphia." Well, I, I discovered one day. I discovered hair straighteners. Well, actually, they were crimpers back then. Because I hated my curly hair. I got curly hair naturally and I hated it. And I discovered these crimpers. I was walking walking to the studio. It was in early, early Bauhaus. And, and I, I saw this shop and, and the shop window. They had these crimpers and I, I, I bought them, you know. And I tried them out and it was like a dream come true. Suddenly I didn't have uh, curly hair anymore. And I could make my hair stick up and stuff with hairspray and things. So it was fantastic. I loved them. So uh, that's not your question, though, is it? I'm, I'm missing the question now. My question was, how did Love, how did Love and Rockets come oh, about? Love and Rockets. Oh, well, that was, um, yeah. Bauhaus is split. I was still doing the Tones thing. Then that disintegrated after doing the Tour of England, the Tour of the States. But I remembered that um, the three of us, David, Kevin, and myself, had remembered that when we were doing the last Bauhaus album, Burning from the inside, Peter was Peter had, had double pneumonia and he wasn't there for the first couple of weeks. So he's still recovering from, from having pneumonia. So the three of us were in there initially working out backing tracks for when Peter arrived. And as it developed, um, 
I'd come up with this song called Slice of Life when I was doing vocals on it, and then David had come up with this uh, um, track called uh, Mr. Moonlight. So we had had those, we had, we recorded them, they're all finished, and Peter wasn't there, you know, and we'd always remembered that that was, there was a very different atmosphere in the studio when Peter wasn't there. It was very different, and it was sort of liberating, it was sort of freer than when the four of us were together. So after Bauhaus broke up and then Tones broke up, Kevin and myself went round to see Dave to see if he wanted to start work, the three of us working together, because we had this great chemistry amongst just the three of us. And, you know, cut a long story short, David agreed, and the rest is history. You know, we went down to the record company, because I was still under contract as uh, Tones on Tail, we went down there and said, okay, we're changing the name of the band. This is a new band. It's called Love and Rockets. Uh, Glenn's not here, and David is David, Kevin, and myself. And there you go. And then we carried on, basically, as Love and Rockets from the original Tones on Tail deal. Now, what was it like when I'm Alive hit so big? Because it was a huge hit. And, you know, you guys had seen good success, but a hit like that, it must really just yeah, be amazing. It's so alive, not yeah, so alive. I mean, so alive. Yeah, I'm alive, so alive. Yeah, yeah. What was it like? It was um, a crazy, crazy year, 1989. So we we all lived in England, so it didn't affect us in as much as you know you could walk down the street and stuff because we we weren't known in England at all. Love and Rockets never took off in England at all. Like so alive was re-released by Beggars Banquet three times in the UK. And it sold a grand total of 600 copies. So, you know, go figure. Whereas in the States, you know, it got into the top three. So um, we never looked back. Yeah, but it, what a year. Yeah, 1989. It was, um, you know, we were on a roll, as they say. And so you were having a great time. So what happened with Love and Rockets then? Well, that's what I'm saying. So alive with Love and Rockets, yeah. No, no I'm, I'm saying what that, what happened. You're on a roll, so oh when, yeah. Well, well, you know, um, we were together as a band for 14 years. I thought it was more like 18, but apparently it's 14 years. Um, but with Love and Rockets, uh, we've we'd uh, put out yeah, okay, so alive. We you know x amount of singles, and then we do what all bands do is we have a break. You know, because we'd been working intensely for a long time. So all, all bands, they all go off and they all do the cliched solo albums. So we went off, did the solo albums. Solo albums don't do so well. Band gets back together again. So, you know, that's what happened with us. And then our, and then at a certain point, basically, grunge came, um, grunge came in uh Nirvana hits it real big uh, with a, a bunch of, you know, basically America had their own bands again. They had their own thing. By coincidence, we just happened to have broke up, but it was the perfect time to break up because America had embraced grunge and we were out. It, 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 was, it was done, you know. We were not cool anymore. I think that was basically it. Grunge completely took over. And um, we split. What is that like? I mean, after after all the years well, of playing, when is we, it? When is... we actually when we split, I was I was 
I was done. I was very happy, extremely happy. That last day, I remember when we were packing all our gear up and going our separate ways, and I was, I felt free as a bird. I, um, yeah, I, it was time. It was, it was time, you know. Um, all good things come to an end, you know, and all that. It was time to move on and do something else. Now, over the years, how has your, your writing changed? Has your writing changed at all? No, it hasn't. No, I mean, I, I'm, 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 I'm got this other new band that I'm very, very excited about. Um, it's called Ashes and Diamonds, and uh, it's with um, Paul Demon on bass. He's from Sade, uh, Sade's bass player, and um, um, it's um, Bruce Smith from Pill, drummer from Pill, and myself. And we started this project about three years ago. And uh, COVID hit, screwed everything up. So we were sort of writing on, you know, one of the guys lives in New York. Uh, Bruce lives in New York and um, Paul lives in, uh, uh, Paul, sorry, Paul lives in um, LA and um, London. So, you know, we we're, we were very separate. So we tried writing together. I uh, was sorry, we tried writing separately and, um, you know, got back together recently to actually finish everything off. So basically we've got um, we've got an album's worth of material. We're just putting fine-tuning it right now. We're about 99% done. It's like 10 tracks, all original songs, no covers. And uh, my writing process is, is the same. Um, whereas I get, a, I get, I get my lyrics from uh, the cut-up idea that Bowie did a lot. It comes from William Burroughs, which is the... Um, I use, I use the National Enquirer a lot, where you um, you cut up all these headlines, and then I rearrange them in order to create you know to create lyrics. And uh, sometimes I use I use lots of glossy mags uh, to use the headlines, or you know something I'll find in a magazine or a book or something. I'll take a line out, lay them, cut them all up, lay them out on the table, and then rearrange them a little bit, a little bit like what you do with those when you get all those uh, words that people put on their fridges right. to make up sentences. It's exactly that idea, but I use um, magazines. So like 90% of the ashes, 90% of, of the lyrics that I come up with are, are that way all through the years. Yeah, so that's why you, it's the cut-up method. I call it the cut-up method. That's amazing. That's so cool. Now, now another question about Bauhaus. You, you guys got together and recorded an album in 2008. What was that like to get back, and why did you do that? Okay, one more time on that. Sorry. You, you guys had gotten back together, Bauhaus. You recorded an album in 2008. Oh, yeah, yeah. What, what, was, what led to that? That would have been a situation... Usually, what usually happens with us is when one band is sort of fizzled out, it's not working anymore, somebody calls somebody else and says, hey, what do you think? Would you, you want to get back together? And then, you know, if everything feels right, nothing else is going on with each of us. Um, we, all, we all meet up and get, get back together. I mean... It, it always goes on uh, a feeling with us. Does it feel right to do this now? And when these opportunities come up, well, with this one, it was it was just um, it felt right again. It, that, that's how it works. It just feels right again for X amount of, of years, and then you know you do it for that amount of time, and then it stops again, and then it starts again. 
it, it was just a case of it, it felt right at that particular time. I can't actually remember in 2008, if that's when it was, that we recorded, because I remember we recorded it where I live in a studio in town here. But um, I can't remember the exact reasoning. It would have been, one of us would have contacted another one, another one of us in the band. Four of us would have uh, contacted each other and it's like, yeah, is this feel right or not? And if it does, then if it did, then we would actually um, meet up again. And, you know, it would always be the case where you'd set the gear up in a room and see what happens. So that's basically... That's happened every single time, right up to today. Now, as a musician, you're a very respected guitar guitarist, and people, you know, say you're an influence to them. How does that make you feel? I mean, sitting there, because you said from the beginning you wanted to create your own sound, and you have, and now people have looked at you as someone who's created their own sound. That must make you feel great. But, yeah, I don't really think about it, to be honest. I mean, there's a lot of years gone by. I mean, I, I have heard this before, and... Um, I think with a band like the Yeah, Yeah, Yes, I can hear an influence there because that guy apparently likes what I do. Um, and he plays very simplistically, and I like the way he plays. He'll, he'll just concentrate on one or two strings to create a real powerful sound, which is appealing to me. So, yeah, there's, there's a few... Um, there's a few examples, I suppose, of people that I could, you know, but I wouldn't be that presumptuous to think that these people have, you know, had me as an influence. I, I really don't know, but, you know, a couple of times it's been mentioned, but I, I don't really think about it, to be honest. It, I don't really get an ego trip out of it, if, if the truth be told. Um, I don't really think about it. I don't know what else to say, really. Okay, well, before we go, I always like to ask my guests, give me uh, two good stories from your career? Wow. Put me on the spot now. Two good stories. Yeah, I love, I love musicians' stories. And so many, I, I was talking to Mike Peters earlier today, and he told a story how meeting the Sex Pistols and then meeting the Clash. And, and oh, okay. Yeah, and, I've got a great one. Yeah, one's right on there. It was when we went, uh, we got offered to play, um, to be the band, um, in this film called The Hunger with David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve. So again, out the blue, we get the phone call. Somebody has seen us play Bella live. Word got around. It was a gig in London. The director of the film was somebody obviously to do with the film. Got in contact with us, asked us if we wanted to be in the film, to be the band in the new, in the uh, nightclub scene. So of course, um, is the Pope a Catholic? We said, yes, you know, of course. So we got the gig. And at 7, uh, 7.30 in the morning, it was a dress rehearsal. So in other words, we're all wearing what we're going to wear for, you know, our spot, which probably would have been 2 o'clock in the afternoon because there's a lot of waiting around when you're doing stuff in film. Anyway, 7.30 in the morning, um, I hear a voice behind me going, Oi, you've got my shoes on. And I turn around and it's David Bowie. <laughs> We had the same shoes on. It's like I was just completely starstruck, couldn't string a sentence together. I think I just grunted in his direction. I was like overwhelmed because I'm a huge, you know, Bowie fan, still am. So that's that's sort of top of the list on stories. And um, but I have got another one as well. It's in similar vein. But anyway, that was yeah. That was. Can you imagine? You know, well, he would have been 36 then, and I was 20. We were all we were 26. 
and uh, to to hear that look around and it's David Bowie and he says, "Oi, you've got my shoes on." It. It's <laughs> funny because he he noticed that you know I was sort of starstruck and he just sort of tried to um, just friendly chat in order to uh, you know to sort of um, bring me down to earth. You know, he understood what was going on, but it was it was a pretty overwhelming starstruck moment for me. But then I've got an I've got another one which is a similar thing um, because of who's involved in the story. There was a time when we were going over to uh, flew, we flew over to New York to do some gigs. Uh, again, this is uh, Bauhaus days, and the three guys, the other three, wanted to go out clubbing, and I was in a funny mood. You know, uh, can be a bit of a moody bugger. So I was in a funny mood, and I didn't want to go out. So I just, you know, they went out, and I just went down to the bar, and it was in this hotel actually, the Uruquois, I think it was called, which I found out later that Iggy sort of lives there. Anyway, so I just went down to the bar on my own and, yeah, I just ordered a drink, having a drink there. And who walks in? I'm not kidding. Iggy Pop and Mick Ronson, you know, David Bowie's guitar player, Mick Ronson. I'm like, what? And I'm just sitting there at the bar, like, and these two, one of them's on my left and one of them's on my right at the bar. And I'm huge fans of both Iggy and Mick Ronson. So can you imagine, you know? I think I was like, we just started out, so I would have been about 22, 23 years old. I, I couldn't believe it. And, and as it turned out, I actually got talking to Mick, Ronson, Mick Ronson's sister, who was there. I, I can't remember how I got talking to her. But uh, I was saying, I can't believe Mick Ronson's there. And she said, yeah, yeah, that's my brother. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, what? And we got talking, and she said, yeah, he's really, he's really humble, really modest. And they, he might have said, I don't know, I don't know quite how how this happened, but um, basically I got invited. Iggy was living in the hotel at that time, and he was having a, part, a spontaneous party upstairs in his room. So, and I got, he invited me. He just said, hey, yeah, we're just having a party. You want to come up? I'm like, again, is the Pope a Catholic and do bad shit in the woods? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'd love to come to your party. Thanks very much. So I'm in an elevator with um, Iggy Pop and I think it was um, Glenn, yeah Iggy Pop and Glenn Matlock who was playing bass for Iggy because he was on the road as well and, and myself went up to his room. Uh, Mick Ronson, you know, is up there with a few of his entourage. So I'm basically sitting in the room there having drinks and smoking with Iggy Pop, uh, Mick Ronson, and a bunch of other people, and. And, and they're having friendly arguments about who's good at what. And, you know, um, Mick Ronson was saying, you should get me to produce your next album because the vocals are too loud and it sounds like the band's in another room. You know? And then and then Iggy Pop's going, oh, what are you talking about? And, and, they, you know, and they're all having this friendly argument about stuff like that. And then Iggy was saying, yeah, you should do another solo album. Slaughter on 10th Avenue was great. No, I don't want to do another one. And I'm hearing all this stuff, and I'm I'm sitting there on the floor cross-legged like everybody else, and we're all drinking just like you're doing parties. And, like, and I'm like, I can't believe I'm here with these guys. These are my total heroes. So, you know, and then about 3 in the morning, you know, we all leave. I actually left Iggy um, a 7-inch single of Terror Couple Kill Colonel. Uh, which was a single that we had out. And I left it, and he had a record player in his room, and I said, hey, check this out, you might like it. And um, he actually came to the our gig two or three nights after that because of that uh, seven-inch single, because he liked it. 
But anyway, back to, um, so, you know, about two, three, four in the morning, whatever, I get back to my room. The guys all come in, all buzzed, you know, drunk, showing off about what a great time they had. And they said, <laughs> oh, you really missed out. You moody, you moody bugger. You, you, and I said, shut the fuck up. Listen to this. You'll never guess where I've just been. And then I told them and they're like, what? You know, and I said, yeah, I've been partying with Iggy Pop and Mick Ronson. And they were like, unbelievable. Yeah, that was, never forget that one. And then funny, you know, like two days later, all four of us, and Iggy was in the bar as well, and all four of us met up with him. And, uh, you know, I had a good old laugh. Good old time. Well, that's... But there you go. They're, they're, they're two, two big stories for me. That's awesome, Daniel. You know, uh, the tour is starting. What what can people expect on the tour? How long are your sets going to be? You know, are, are you already working on it? Do you have well, your set I'm list? Still working, I'm, still working, I'm still working out the tracks. But, you know, the set's going to be the, the, the usual hour, hour and 20. Um, but we have got a very original psychedelic live show coming up. Modern psychedelia is the way I would describe it without going into any more detail because I don't want to, you know, give the game away. But... We've got, um, we've got, it's going to be very, very different, I think, from the uh, usual rock band visuals. That's all I can really say about it. Let's it's very new, very new for us anyway. But there's some new technology out there with, that we're going to embrace. And um, I think it's going to be something very different visually. Well, that's awesome, Daniel. I want to thank you so much for... Uh for coming on today. I'm, I'm going to try to make it to see you guys in Philly. Uh, people, yeah. go go look up Daniel Ash. Go look, listen to some Bauhaus, listen to Love and Rockets, get to, uh, concert tickets. They're going to sell out. They're going to sell out. They're playing. It, it starts at the Cruel World Festival May 20th, and they're going through uh, West Coast and East Coast, so check them out. Uh, check out my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 950 episodes. Email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. Twitter, it's at CooperTalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.